Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you this morning. And uh, after watching that commercial, it's not something we normally do on a Sunday morning, but I thought as I, I watched that this past week, there's nothing that really sums up this commandment, the thrust of this commandment uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning more than that. I mean, just consider for a moment what we just saw uh, and why this commandment is so effective. It's, it's because we've all been there to some degree, right? Now, it might not be a pool. It might not be neighbors. It might not be someone with a larger circle of social influence. It might not be someone who has the perfect hair. But surely, we've all found ourselves in a place thinking, I really do like these people. I just would like them a little more if I wasn't intimately aware of what they have that I don't. The other night, our family was returning from dinner at the lakes, and we pulled onto our street, and the first thing that I noticed was this absolutely beautiful van parked across the street at our neighbor's house. No joke, I have never seen a van that beautiful before. And I whistled in admiration, and Crystal said something like, no kidding, I have serious van envy right now, and we drove slowly, not with our eyes on the road, but on this van. Now, that, that story probably tells you at least two things. First, it reveals that while Crystal and I may be young, uh, we, we have old souls. Gone are the days where I will whistle in admiration at a BMW or a sports car, and here to stay are the days when I salivate over a minivan. It's rather depressing to think about uh, as I think of it. But second, it also shows us how insidious the sin of covetousness is within each and every one of us. Crystal and I weren't malicious in our admiration of this van. We had no intention of going and stealing it. We had no intention of slashing its tires so that way the owner couldn't enjoy it and use it. But in that moment, it revealed, yes, a somewhat comical, but, but it revealed to us in that moment a manifestation of a serious problem that I think plagues each and every one of us. This morning is our last week in our summer series looking at the Ten Commandments, looking at the, the 10th commandment, the final commandment, this commandment that says that we are not to covet. Now, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 17, which is our text for this morning. So please follow along as I read aloud. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here, we find the last of the Ten Commandments. God transitions from the external actions to matters of the heart. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this commandment is actually the most important of the commandments because it makes explicit what was implicit in all of the commandments up to this point. Up to this point, God is focused on external actions with an implicit focus on our hearts. But here it is explicit. God is not just concerned with external acts of righteousness. He is just as concerned with matters of the heart. To this point, all of the commandments, specifically the horizontal commandments, governing our relationships with neighbors, have been external. It will be plain to your neighbor if you rob them. It will be plain to your neighbor if you lie to them. It will be plain to your neighbor if you steal from them if you murder them, or on and on. But your neighbor is never going to know that you are coveting their boat that sits in their driveway. No one 
but God will know if we break this commandment. But sure enough, here we see how important our heart's desires are to God. And so as we explore this commandment, here's our our roadmap for it this morning. First, I want us to consider just what covetousness means. We're going to diagnose what this actually means. Second, I want us to, to consider why God prohibits covetousness. Why is it a big deal if we never act on these desires for our neighbor's things and possessions and on and on? And finally, I want us to just consider what, what we can do as people who, who follow Christ, how we can combat covetousness in our lives. And so as we approach this commandment, please join me in prayer once more. God, we do rejoice that these commandments that you've given to us bring life. And God, as we've gone through this series, I personally have been reminded time and time and time again of the words that we even read earlier this morning from the book of Psalms, that the law of the Lord is perfect, that the law of the Lord revives the soul, that the commandments of the Lord are pure, that they enlighten the eyes, and they are to be more desired than gold. And so, God, as we bring, begin our time together this morning, again, looking at your commandments, first we just want to rejoice at the immeasurable worth of these commandments. We rejoice at the freedom that is found in these commandments, the true human flourishing that is found in following your commandments. And we ask that now, this morning, you would come and speak to us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we begin this morning, let's first consider this word covet and what it means to covet. Now, it's, it's a very Christian word. It's oftentimes used in, in Christian circles. But a friend of mine helpfully gives us an understanding of what this word that we commonly use means. He, he's, he puts it this way. Coveting is to desire something that is enjoyed by another. Coveting is to desire something that is enjoyed by another. Now, desire itself is not wrong. The biblical worldview makes no room for a Buddhist mindset that denies desires of all types. Desire itself is a good thing because God created us to desire, but oftentimes our desires are warped, they are twisted, and we desire things that we should not desire, specifically things that belong to another. And so for us, to understand what coveting means, we, we, we take this good thing that God has given us, this desire, and it is twisted in a way that is antithetical to God's plan, and we desire something that God has entrusted to someone else. Now, this definition, coveting is to desire something that is enjoyed by another. It's a helpful one because it distinguishes between covetousness and the sister sin of envy. Covetousness often leads to envy, but envy is a deeper evil than covetousness. To quote the philosopher Cornelius Plantinga, envy is a nastier sin than covetousness. What an envier wants is not, first of all, what another one has. What an envier wants is for another not to have. The coveter has empty hands and wants to fill them with someone else's goods. The envier has empty hands and therefore wants to empty the hands of the envied. 
So, for example, go back to Crystal and I with our van envy. It wasn't really van envy at all. We didn't want to deprive others of their van. We just wanted one for ourselves. We would get no satisfaction in seeing them be parted from their van. We would just love to have one just like it. Or consider that commercial that we just watched. The man's inner voice bears no ill will toward his neighbor, I I think. He just wants to have more than him. Now, why do I bring this distinction up? I bring it up because it shows just how pervasive this sin truly is. On occasion, in our weakest moments, we may be envious of others. We may desire to see them deprived of the good while we ourselves are exalted. But for the most part, we have no issue with other people owning their things. We just wish that we could also own them. We're going to dive into the implications of this distinction here in a few moments. Now, it might be surprising for us to come to the end of the Ten Commandments and see this commandment that focuses on the heart. And it might seem actually a little bit anticlimactic for us because God doesn't end with a, a so, so to speak, bang, focusing on adultery or murder or theft. Why is it that God focuses on something that is so private and yet also so prevalent among humanity? And to answer that question, we need to turn to the New Testament and just look at the significance of how God uses the Ten Commandments to show two men their spiritual state. They come face to face with their spiritual state and are unable to run from their heart's condition because of the Tenth Commandment. So let's take a look at, at the New Testament. We're going to look at two different examples or two different stories from the New Testament. The first one is found in the Gospels. It's an interaction between Jesus and a man that's commonly known as the rich young ruler. Uh, it's found in Luke chapter 18. Uh, the, the rich young ruler, I'm going to try to describe what this man is like. He's a, he's a man who has his life together. He's got a life plan. Uh, he's had one since he was like 16. He's followed it diligently through hard work, through discipline. He's met success everywhere he has turned. By the time he turns 30, he's got a great wife. He's got a couple beautiful kids. He earns a great salary. He knows that life is more than just about money. And so he volunteers his time, he gives back to the church, he gives back to the community, he eventually runs for public office, and because he has his act together, and that's such a novel thought in in politics, he wins the election in a landslide. As one uh, pastor describes this man, he says this, this man knows that life is more than just money. It also is about values, and values are important to him. He has raised a good family, he has been a great husband and father, he is known for his generosity Excuse me, he is known for his generosity to others. But more than that, he is a true believer in God. He knows that beyond death lies eternity, and he wants to make sure that he is ready. So he sets the goal of living a good life. He attends church, he prays to God, and he gives generously to good causes. It sounds like a really great life, doesn't it? But then one day, this man hears that Jesus is in town. Jesus is the spiritual expert, and so he decides to go to him and ask him what I must do to inherit eternal life. This is a man who has accomplished everything he set his mind to. He set his mind to a lot of things. And although he has set his mind to honoring God, here he wants to check in with Jesus to make sure that he's got everything covered. How is it that Jesus responds to this man? Well, Jesus starts by quoting the Ten Commandments. 
He actually mentions, and even though he doesn't mention them in chronological order, Jesus mentions commandments five through nine. And how does the man respond? It's almost as if Jesus is listing every commandment. He's checking it off the list. Murder, well, I've never done that. Theft, I've earned all of my money the honest way, and on and on and on and on. And Jesus gets to the end of the list, and this man must be pretty excited because he says, with his earnest belief, all of these things I have kept since I was a young boy. Why is it that Jesus doesn't mention the 10th commandment? Well, it's because Jesus is about to use the 10th commandment to unearth the depths of brokenness in this man's soul. Why does God give us the 10th commandment? It's for men and women just like this one. It's for people who are morally upright, people who have the appearance of having their lives together. Martin Luther, the great reformer, comments on this commandment. He says this, This last commandment then is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright to people who wish to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against the preceding commandments. In other words, this commandment is meant for people who think they are left standing after the preceding commandments. It's It's for people like the rich young ruler, and I would boldly say People like some of us here this morning, people who oftentimes can think that we have conformed to the law, And so Jesus continues with this man in Luke chapter 18, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Some terrifying words there. What is it that Jesus is saying? What is it that Jesus is doing? He's pointing out that this man's greatest struggle in his life is the 10th commandment. That this man places too much value on things. His external actions may be pristine, but that's not enough in God's economy. If this man really wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life, he's going to have to come to grips with his heart. In other words, he needs to come to grips with the 10th commandment. And this man is sad because the cost is high, and in his mind it is impossibly high, and he's unwilling to come to grips with the darkness of his own heart and to seek mercy from Jesus, and so he walks away, and as far as we know, he walks away from eternity. This man comes to grips, refuses to come to grips, rather, with his spiritual state that is revealed through the 10th commandment. There's another man in the New Testament described in a very similar way to this rich young ruler. Like the rich young ruler, this man has his life together. He is on the fast track in life. He is born into a wealthy, privileged family. He goes to the right school. He quickly becomes one of the most well-known theological scholars, especially for his age in the early 30s. And his name is Saul. Consider his list of accomplishments according to his own mouth, found from Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, like the rich young ruler, Saul, later called Paul, had lived a life of pristine external righteousness. But at some point of his life, and we don't know when, Paul has to come face to face with the 10th commandment. He has to come face to face with his heart. Notice how Paul describes this in the book of Romans, chapter 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Notice these words. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And we might be wondering, what exactly is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that even though he has a long list of external, righteous, uh, external accomplishments of, of morality, uh, of righteousness, at some point in his life, the truth of the 10th commandment dawns on him, and he has to come to terms with his righteousness before God. And he has to come to terms that his righteousness, that he is in placing his trust in, wasn't all that it's cracked up to be. Indeed, this 10th commandment wrecks Paul, ruins any thoughts of self-righteousness in him, leads to a heart that is wholly dependent upon the mercy of Christ. And it's because of the 10th commandment that Paul, at the end of his life, can, can declare this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life to the king of the ages." Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why is this commandment included in the Ten Commandments? Because for those of us who can delude ourselves into thinking that we have kept the first nine commandments, this commandment ruins any illusions we may have of our own righteousness. As one author points out, covetousness is the killer commandment for good people. And once we have fully grasped the depths of this commandment, we will see that we are a long way from keeping the other nine. As we have explored the significance of this commandment, we've dipped into the why of this commandment too. Why does God prohibit covetousness? So let's dive a little bit deeper into the why, considering three reasons why God prohibits coveting in the Ten Commandments. First, covetousness is the root of all other sins. It's the root of all other sins. As we pointed out a few weeks ago, no sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. Corrupt actions start with corrupted desires, and the Bible is filled with examples of those who were led into breaking the other commandments because they broke the first one. Or excuse me, they broke this one first. One only needs to think of the account of David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11. How does the story start? Notice verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
That's how the story starts. David just sees this woman and he desires her. And it ends with David committing adultery, breaking the seventh commandment, killing a man, breaking the sixth commandment, and lying about it to cover it all up, breaking the ninth commandment. David didn't set out to break these commandments. He, he, the story doesn't start with David saying to himself, you know, I've done a pretty good job of keeping the Ten Commandments, but it's time to spice life up. I want to go down in history as a murderer, as a perjurer, as an adulterer, so here goes nothing. No, it starts with covetousness. So it is with countless other sins. The word covet here in Exodus 20 is also used to describe the desires and the actions of the woman in Genesis 3. She sees the fruit and she desires or she covets it and she takes it. And the rest is, as they say, history. Why does God prohibit covetousness? Because it is the root of all other kinds of sins. Second, covetousness is a horizontal manifestation of a vertical problem. It is a horizontal manifestation of a vertical problem. Recall what we said earlier about the difference between covetousness and envy. Envy wants to deprive our neighbors of something for our benefit, while covetousness is indifferent to our neighbor's well-being as long as we also get the same benefit. And this is where the heart of covetousness shows itself. It is primarily a vertical problem, not a horizontal one. When we covet, we often think that that has little to do with God. After all, I'm not desiring something that God has. I'm desiring something that my neighbor has. But when we covet, we are desiring the blessings that God has entrusted to another for our own. Fundamentally, covetousness shows a fracture in our vertical relationship with God. It shows not that we have a problem with our neighbor, but that we have a problem with God. Covetousness is a complaint against God, that the life that he has given to us is not good enough. But instead, we should have been given the same things that someone else has. Coveting rears its head, not just with material plenty, but in virtually every area. When Crystal and I lived in the Chicago area, first got married, one of the claims to fame of our first neighborhood was that Michael Jordan lived right down the road. It was common for us when we'd have family or friends visiting that we'd take a, a short drive down to his place, go over to the gate with this iconic 23 on the gate, show them a glimpse of his property. And indeed, the North Shore of Chicago, where we lived, one of the wealthiest parts of the Chicago metro area. Bike rides through the neighborhoods, uh, through residential areas would show houses worth millions of dollars. And on the few times where we were welcomed into those houses, we encountered just as much wealth on the inside as on the out. And it was commonplace for our old Malibu to be waiting at the same red light with literally millions of dollars worth of cars around us. Now, I can honestly say that we didn't struggle all that much with coveting the wealth of our neighbors in those days. For one, coveting oftentimes strikes closer to home. It didn't bother me when the people who made millions of dollars a year had millions of dollars worth of toys. It seemed ridiculous to even entertain those types of thoughts, to compare myself with the players from the bears and the bulls that we would sometimes run into at the store. 
But while I didn't struggle with coveting my neighbor's things, I did struggle with coveting my classmates and their accomplishments, their accolades, and their achievements and opportunities. To quote the novelist Joseph Heller, there is no disappointment so numbing as someone no better than you achieving more. There is no disappointment so numbing as someone no better than you achieving more. One of my closest friends in seminary received a full-ride scholarship that I also applied for and didn't get. Another close friend was hired a year into seminary full-time at a megachurch in the area. Another close friend was chosen for a prestigious internship after seminary that I also applied for and didn't get. What didn't get me that was that these friends had received these opportunities and blessings. What got me was a constant, constant wondering, God, when is my break going to come? Covetousness has at its heart a lack of trust in God's plan for your life. It is a pride that says, God, I deserve better than what you have given me. It is a stubborn defiance that says, God, what you have given me is not enough. Covetousness is, at its core, a horizontal manifestation of a vertical problem. One final reason why God prohibits covetousness. It's found in the New Testament. Covetousness is idolatry. It's idolatry. Paul makes this clear in Ephesians and Colossians. Ephesians, he writes this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or God. He says the same thing in Colossians. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness stands at the end of the Ten Commandments and points us back to the first. When we covet, we show our lack of trust in God's plan for us. We are creating idols out of the things that he has not entrusted to us. By breaking the Tenth Commandment, we also break the first why is coveting so serious in God's eyes? Because it is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. We have seen what covetousness is. We've seen why this matters so much to God, why we should take this so seriously. So where do we go from here? How can we live a life of faithfulness the honor and glory of God. Well, let's take a moment and look at the key to combating covetousness, and that's simply contentment. Contentment is the opposite of covetousness. It is a heart that does not say to God, what you have given me is not good enough. It is a heart that says to God, what you have entrusted to me is more than enough. One of the lengthiest descriptions, discussions, on contentment is found at the end of the book of Philippians where Paul writes this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How is it that Paul is able in whatever circumstance, how is it that he is able to say that he is and will continue to be content? Paul had, had lived a life of polar opposites. This is a man who has preached to crowds of thousands and he's done ministry in a one-room jail cell, forgotten by nearly everyone. He had been the honored guest of countless wealthy people and he had gone for long stretches of time without any money. He had been surrounded by beautiful Christian fellowship and he had been abandoned by nearly everyone. And through it all, in every experience, Paul says that he has learned contentment. That's an important word because it takes us time to learn contentment. It's not something that comes naturally. We have to continually remind ourselves of it time and time again. So let's briefly consider three keys to contentment. First is this, contentment spends more time looking at God than it does others or our circumstances. It spends more time looking at God than it does at others or our circumstances. What is it? that got Paul through the ups and downs of life? What is it that allowed Paul to say in Philippians chapter one, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. How is it Paul is able to say this, that he's content whether people are being uh, working alongside of him or, or people are using the gospel as a way to, uh, to afflict him? How is it that he can say, I rejoice no matter what the cause or no matter what the reason? It's simply this. Paul spent more time looking at Jesus than he did at other people. Paul spent more time looking at Jesus than he did his circumstances. The moment our gaze drifts, the moment we spend more time looking at others or at our circumstances, of course we are going to lose our contentment. Contentment comes not from some sort of self-discipline, not from building ourselves up, but by gazing at the wondrous cross. Contentment spends more time looking at God than it does at others or our circumstances. Second, contentment is possible because of the promises of God. It's possible because of the promises of God. In his final exhortations to the church, the author of Hebrews writes these beautiful few verses. Hebrews chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? How does the author of Hebrews urge the church to learn contentment? He quotes the Old Testament. But surprisingly, he quotes two passages that seem to have nothing to do with contentment or covetousness and yet understood in what he's trying to say here, these texts are incredibly powerful in our battle for contentment. The first one is this, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's from Joshua chapter one. It's right after the people of Israel 
excuse me, right as the people of Israel are about to enter the promised land under Joshua, their new leader. This is a generation that's well uh, acquainted with spiritual failure. Their parents' generation has died in the wilderness because of the rebellion against God. And yet here, God says, right on the verge of the promised land, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. When we are tempted to covet our neighbor's things, when we are tempted to covet our our co-worker's promotion, your brother-in-law's accomplishments, remember this. God has committed to never leave you, to never forsake you, even when you have turned your back on him. His faithfulness to you has earned him the benefit of the doubt when you are troubled with a perceived lack of fairness in life. As one author writes, God's perseverance with us in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, is enough to justify our perseverance with him, trusting him as a careful and loving provider, even though he seems to be providing better for others in material terms. God has promised to never leave or forsake you, a promise that he intends on keeping. That's the thrust of the second quote from Psalm 118, a reminder that God has been faithful to you regardless of your own degree of faithfulness to him. And so why would you complain about God's fairness? The second key to contentment is to gaze upon the promises of God. The third is not so much a key as much as a result. Contentment allows you to truly love your neighbor. Contentment allows you to truly love your neighbor. You cannot truly love your neighbor as yourself, which is what God asks of us, if you are too busy coveting what they have. If you're too busy coveting their accomplishments, their life, and you aren't content with your own. Notice Paul's words in Romans. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Just like all the other commandments that Paul lists, This commandment is integral for loving your neighbor wholeheartedly. If you are content with your lot in life because you rest in the promises of God for you and you are constant in your gaze upon Christ, then you have the freedom to love others the way that God desires you to love them. Contentment allows you to truly love your neighbor. You see, throughout our time in the Ten Commandments, we have repeatedly seen that keeping these commandments is the key to loving God and to loving others. And that's no less true than it is here with the Tenth Commandment. And so as we close this morning, what is our charge? I think it's simply this. The Tenth Commandment is a charge to be content with whatever God has entrusted to you. It is a charge to be content with whatever God has entrusted to you. To quote one pastor, if God has given us wealth, we ought to be content. If lack, the same. 
It is not poverty or wealth that leads us to contentment and trust in the Lord, but the confidence that it is God, that if God provided so richly for our salvation by choosing, redeeming, calling, adopting, and justifying us, and by sending his spirit to cause us to grow into Christ-likeness, then surely we can count on him for the less essential matters of daily existence. God may have entrusted you with little. God may have entrusted you with much. God may have entrusted you with a calling that may seem smaller than those around you, that may not seem fair to you, but whatever your calling, whatever your stage of life, your situations in life, be content by gazing upon Christ and resting in his unfailing promises. I shared earlier that one of the struggles for me when we lived in Chicago was to see dear friends, friends that I love, still love, to see dear friends get opportunities and recognition that I didn't. Do you know what text got me through those seasons of coveting and and allowed me to find contentment? It's at the end of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 21, Jesus is meeting individually with Peter in a passage that's commonly known as the restoration of Peter. Peter has, of course, denied Jesus three times, and and Jesus uh, forgives him. Jesus restores Peter to his side, and then Jesus gives Peter a glimpse of the hardship that is to come for him. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of faith he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. It's not exactly the most exciting prospect to get to hear about your future, and then hear that you're going to be executed for your faith. And it's clear that, Paul, that Peter uh, isn't, isn't too wild about what Jesus has said either. He's not wild about what his future holds. And so he, he responds, not by looking at Christ. Remember, contentment comes from gazing more at Christ than at other people. But notice how Peter responds. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, is this the one who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? His gaze is not upon Christ. It's upon another person. Here's Peter, so caught up in his future circumstances that he turns, he looks at his friend John and says, what about him? Do you have suffering in store for him as well? That's not fair. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. Really what Jesus says to any of us who get caught up in the games of comparison, the games of coveting, the games of fairness. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus simply says to Peter, I have a different plan for him than I do for you. And even if that plan meant that he were to face no pain, no hardship, no loss until I return, does that matter? Does that really matter? You, Peter, follow 
me. Don't get caught up in keeping score of who I am being fair to. Just follow me. God says the same thing to each of us this morning. Follow me. Be content with what God has entrusted to you because he has proven himself faithful and he will always keep his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is living and active, that you can use words that were written so long ago and they are still relevant, they are still truthful, they are still able to transform lives through the work of your spirit. And so God, now I I just pray that you would help each and every one of us come to grips with our own hearts, to examine ourselves, to see where our desires, which is a good thing from you, are often twisted. Help us to be content, not by gazing at others, not by gazing at our circumstances, but by looking at you, by clinging to the promises of God to be content with what you have entrusted to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.